Glacial Ultimate Sports Talk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show. It is getting cold outside as we are getting into the second half of the National Football League season. And, of course, we've got NFL football coming up for you in just about an hour from now on the NFL Network. But, of course, we've got a lot of other things going on, and most of it, you know, I hate to get political on this show, but tonight, to lead off the show, there's a couple of items that are going to be extremely political, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But first of all, if you'd like to contact us here at the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, you can, just by simply sending me a tweet at my Twitter address, at OHBBCoHost, or you can send me an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. The Bills are playing the Jets tonight. Lou Brock has got some health problems, a Hall of Famer from Major League Baseball. Is George Carl in trouble in Sacramento in the NBA? And we've got a lot of other stuff going on tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first, the two largest daily fantasy sports operators acknowledged Wednesday that New York State is vital to the future of their businesses and said they would pursue all legal options to remain in operation there despite a demand by the state attorney general that they stop allowing residents to play because their games constituted illegal gambling under state law. FanDuel and the other daily fantasy sports giant, Boston-based DraftKings, must also negotiate another potential landmine. Vantiv Entertainment Solutions, a major financial transaction processor, told its daily fantasy sports clients, including DraftKings and SportsDuel, FanDuel, excuse me, that it must require you to immediately stop accepting players from New York in light of the cease and desist order from the state attorney general, Eric T. Schneiderman, according to people familiar with the email correspondence at two daily fantasy sports companies operating in New York. Charlie Rose and CBS News reports on what's going on. Two fantasy sports websites said today they'll fight to stay in business in New York State. The attorney general there whistled them for illegal gambling and ordered them to stop taking bets in the state. Vladimir Dutier is following it. FanDuel's one-week fantasy football leagues are paying $75 million a week. Fantasy websites FanDuel and DraftKings have become cash cows. They brought in nearly $1 billion in entry fees last year. Both companies spent over $200 million on ads that seemed to run nonstop during football games. This is the fantasy football season that could change it all. The sites were exempt from a 2006 federal law that banned online gambling because, they argued, their contests involved skill, not luck. But after investigating the two companies, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is calling a foul. It's not some new variation on the traditional fantasy sports. It's just a variation on illegal online gambling, and you can't do that in New York State. Fantasy sports players like Eric Giuseppe believe Schneiderman has gone too far. To make the whole thing illegal, I think he's going to get a lot of backlash from it, and I don't think it's going to work out well for him at all. Six other states have banned online fantasy sports for money. But according to industry research, New York State has more daily fantasy players than any other. This sort of aggressive marketing, the instant payout, the fact that you can do it on your phone anytime, this is a very tempting venue for anyone who has gambling addiction problems. Today, in a conference call with reporters, FanDuel CEO Nigel Eccles said the company would pursue every legal option. We're a legal game. We feel the AG office has taken a very extreme and very sudden position. 
that New Yorkers are not capable of making their own decisions when it comes to playing fantasy sports. DraftKings and FanDuel have five days to respond to Tuesday's cease and desist order, and both companies have said they plan on challenging the order in cart, Charlie. Until then, FanDuel CEO says they will continue to offer paid contests to its New York customers. Uh, This is a very strange situation. I'm going to get into this. Legal experts said that under the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act of 2006, when a state says that a sports website is offering gambling services unlawfully, the onus is on the payment providers like Vantiv to prohibit restrictive transactions or risk steep civil and or criminal punishments. That's why Vantiv did what they did today. A spokesman for DraftKings also said that the company would continue to allow New Yorkers to participate until the deadline. Both companies, FanDuel and DraftKings, are also under investigation by the Department of Justice and the FBI. In a short time, FanDuel, DraftKings, and other operations have entwined themselves with the major U.S. sports leagues and several professional teams organizing sponsorship deals with Major League Baseball, 15 NFL teams, and securing investments from a multitude of big-name sources from Fox Sports to Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. Now, I very rarely bet on sports. If I do, it's most notably on football. I don't do it very often, and I don't do it for very much. Every once in a while, I'll put $5 down on a game online, but other than that, I don't do it very often. Now, when I do, I do notice a change in the way that I watch the event. I never, ever bet on an Ohio State game or a Cleveland Browns game, ever. But when I do bet on another game, I tend to watch it differently. I've also bet on NHL games. I've bet on NBA games. Never on teams that I am rooting for or against, though. If I have got a rooting interest in the game, I don't bet on it. But I do notice that when I do, it gives me a different viewpoint from the game. And I don't like it. What this is, is the government saying that this is a luck situation rather than a skill situation. I can see it from both sides. You have to know the teams that you're dealing with. You have to know the players that you're dealing with when you go into these fantasy leagues. But you've also got to have some luck also. Because if you don't have the luck, if a player doesn't play well for you that night, you've absolutely got no chance of winning. Can you regulate this? I really don't see how you can regulate this. We've had regulations over the banking industry in the past, and look where that got us five years ago. Nobody has gone to jail yet. We lost trillions and trillions of dollars based upon that entire situation that happened in 2008 and 2009. People lost their homes, they lost their jobs, they lost money out of their retirement fund, yet this is what the government chooses to go after? I find that rather hard to believe. Regulating the industry could create a false perception that the government has somehow made these games more fair. And that's going to render a false sense of security for the unsophisticated players. In everyone's mind, including mine, this is just a ploy for the government to find a way to get their cut. If they get the tax money, if they can find a way to tax it, and they get that tax money, 
then they'll approve this and they'll go forward. If they can't find a way to do it, they'll try to outlaw it. And quite frankly, that is not right. As we said at the top, a lot of political activity going on around college football this weekend. And it continued on at the University of Missouri, where back in September, the student government president reported that people shouted racial slurs at him from a passing pickup truck. And that's where all the turmoil began over the past few days. It galvanized a protest movement. And then last week, a graduate student went on a hunger strike to demand the resignation of University President Tim Wolf over his handling of the racial complaints. Then more than 30 members of the Missouri football team refused to practice or play in support of the hunger striker. Those developments came to a head on Monday with the resignation of Wolf and Chancellor R. Bowen Lofton, the top administrator of the Columbia campus. Some students, faculty, and alumni have said the protests and top leaders' resignations are the culmination of years of racial tension. Then today, a white college student suspected of posting online threats to shoot black students and faculty at the University of Missouri was charged with making a terrorist threat, adding to the racial tension at the heart of the protest that led two top administrators to resign earlier this week. Hunter Park, a 19-year-old sophomore studying computer science at a sister campus in Rolla, was arrested shortly before 2 a.m. at a residence hall. The school said no weapons were found, and Boone County prosecutors announced the criminal charge later on Wednesday and recommended that he be held without bond. Park, who was enrolled at the Missouri University of Science and Technology, was jailed in Columbia, about 75 miles to the northwest. Now, this is more political than it has to do with sports, of course, but the Mizzou football team took it upon themselves to make it a nationwide known event. Our inside college football analysts, Brian Jones, Rick Neuheisel, Randy Cross, and Aaron Taylor of CBS Sports discussed the decision from the Missouri Tigers football team to go on strike to force the removal of the university president. For weeks, students, including one graduate student who had been on a week-long hunger strike, had called for action in response to a perceived failure to address racist incidents on campus. On Saturday night, black players on the football team announced via social media their boycott plans while University President Tim Wolf remained in office. On Sunday, Coach Gary Pinkle posted a photo with more than 100 members of the team united in the protest. And soon after, he and athletic director Mac Rhodes confirmed the plans to boycott practice. News of the football team's involvement brought national attention to the problems in Missouri. On Monday morning, Wolf announced his resignation. This isn't the first boycott by a football team, but because it threatened Saturday's game against BYU in Kansas City and toppled high-ranking university officials, it has resonated the loudest, not to mention the power of social media. The force of athletes uniting was clearly evident, guys. How do we think here that this event could shape the future of collegiate athletics and athletes taking action? Well, I think it's a watershed moment. You know, we sat here last year and we discussed the Ed O'Bannon case and other movement and, and requests of players, the unionization up in Northwestern with those players. And I just distinctly remember saying once these guys realize the leverage and the power that they possess, none of us may be sitting here. You know, I think the game will live on, uh, but the antiquated amateur 
amateurism system, I think it's definitely it needs to take notice and, and it may be on life support at this point. And just about what happened there in Missouri, I've been in a similar situation at the University of Texas. It happened during spring ball, not during the regular season where there was a racial incident on campus. And we went to our head coach, David McWilliams, at the time and said, until something someone addresses this situation, because it had it wasn't the first time it had occurred. We're not playing. We're not practicing. We're not doing anything. It, once again, it happened during spring ball. So not as much uh, significance, I don't believe, considering there were no games that we could say we would forfeit or anything like that. But this has been going on. It's too too much of this is happening. Uh, this 20, you know, 21st century, this should not be occurring. Yeah, the real power and the leverage, though, happened when the entire football right. team right. and Gary Pinkle came in behind this thing. And once that happened, I think a lot of people paid the attention it was due. And also, once this thing was over and the gentleman had stepped down, I think they looked up and went, wow, you know, that's something that these teams, that's something these players, that's a power that teams have. And it's a power of a team, again, but it's off the field, but it's still a power of the team. Did Gary Pinkle have a choice, do you think? Well, of course he had a choice, but again, coaches preach team. And this was an easy issue to decide which side they should be on. And so he gets his guys together and says, I'm with you. And despite the fact that we're going to demand for the resignation of my boss. You know, when you're a head coach on a university campus, you work for an athletic director and you work for a president. And now you're calling, you're saying, I'm with you guys. This is, this, you're my team and I'm your head coach and we're going to stand together because this is the right thing to do. And I think he did exactly the right thing. But eventually there's going to be a cause where their head coach is going to have to say, as you suggest, you know, if the players unite and want to uh, stand up for being paid or compensated or something like that, that's going to be a tougher call for a, right. for a head coach to be making when he's mm-hmm. standing against those who employ him. Well, it's interesting when you look at this situation, because situations like this, it's never about what it's about. There's always something underneath it. And I think what's underneath this situation is respect. Yeah. So when you look at this situation, it didn't happen in a vacuum. So I look at the Petri dish of which this emerged, if you will. The reality is Missouri is two hours drive from Ferguson. We know all the racial tension that has gone on there recently. A couple of years ago, you had an African-American player of note in that school come out and say that he was gay. That caused a lot of a stir. Now you have a football team that's not doing well. Now you have a student body president who's African-American. There are a lot of things where it's not just an isolated event. When you look at the entire landscape, it's a piece of a much bigger puzzle that is coming to a head and to fruition. And I think this incident started out with support of the student body president that brought in the athletes who then looked around in a season where they're not doing very well and it, we were able to join the cause. But you don't think that the fact that they're, not, they're struggling on the field would have changed their position? 100% I do. You think, I think they would absolutely. not have stood with the, with the student body president? I, I think it's much easier to do that in a losing season than if they were 9-0 and one of their players. If they were 9-0 in a top five well. team? Uh, I'm talking about the locker room dynamic, not That's what's right power. or wrong. That's I'm talking e- about players. More leverage. That's exactly. players. More leverage. Players having the courage to step up when there's something for them personally to lose is easier to do when there's not as much at stake in the other well, area. At of the your end, it's, at it's the worth end of noting the day, that they handled that situation with Sam as a team as extremely a team, well. It was yeah. divided just as this situation but was, but it stayed in house just like this but situation. What is did. right is right, Thank regardless you. of the no record. No matter what your record is, yeah, they're standing for a cause. Not, They've got to live in that community, in that environment. I didn't say I what, what was what right. I said, is. how did the record affect it? If this was a winning season, this does not happen. I disagree with you wholeheartedly. The university has promised changes 
Chuck Henson, a black law professor and associate dean, was appointed on Tuesday as the university's first ever interim vice chancellor for inclusion, diversity, and equity. The university system's governing body, the Board of Curators, also announced other initiatives, including offering more support for hiring and retaining diverse faculty and staff and performing a full review of all policies related to staff and student conduct. Well, in stories this week that have much more to do with the game of football, former Tulsa, Arizona, and Ohio State football coach John Cooper has been named the recipient of the AFCA's 2016 Amos Alonzo Stag Award. The award is given to those whose services have been outstanding in the advancement of the best interests of college football and will be presented to Cooper at the AFCA Awards Luncheon on January 12th during the 2016 AFCA Convention in San Antonio, Texas. Cooper took the head coaching position at Ohio State in 1988 and he remained there for the rest of his career. While in Ohio, he led the Buckeyes to 10 consecutive bowl games and coached the 1995 Heisman Trophy winner, Eddie George. Out of his 11 total bowl appearances with the Buckeyes, most notably are Cooper's Rose Bowl and Sugar Bowl victories in 1996 and 1998, respectively, making Ohio State the runner-up national champions for both of those years. He is Ohio State's second all-time winningest coach with a 111-43-4 record. The University of Minnesota announced yesterday that Tracy Clays, a longtime behind-the-scenes assistant, had signed a three-year, $4.5 million contract as their new head football coach. The Gophers removed the interim tag they gave Clays after Jerry Kill retired for health reasons on October 28th. University officials were so content with Clays, they decided against conducting a national search for Kill's replacement. Clays was so confident, he negotiated his contract without an agent. The Gophers stuck with Clays, who had spent 21 years working as an assistant under Kill, mostly as the defensive coordinator. Kill resigned suddenly two weeks ago for health reasons after going 29-29 and in four-plus seasons in leading the team. During his tearful final news conference, Kill made it clear he wanted Clays to replace him. Well, with their win over LSU on Saturday, the Alabama Crimson Tide moved up to number two in this week's college football playoff rankings. Reese Davis of ESPN announced the rankings on Tuesday. The number one team remains the Clemson Tigers after beating Florida State. Dabo Swinney's team now finishes out the regular season prior to the ACC championship game against three teams that are all at this point three and six. They should stroll into the title game almost certainly against North Carolina, and that would be a hurdle the Tigers would have to clear to get in to the playoff. At number two, Alabama jumps from four to two after an impressive victory at home against LSU last week. The Crimson Tide will be tested against 17th-ranked Mississippi State on the road Saturday afternoon, just behind Alabama, and I know there's a long way to go, but a potential rematch from last year's Sugar Bowl of Alabama and Ohio State, but that's two and three sitting at the moment. So there are three teams not yet ranked, so let's compare the three teams we have not yet seen on the board and look how the Iowa Hawkeyes have moved at least into the top six. Iowa was ninth last week. Baylor, Iowa, both undefeated. Notre Dame, who was sitting in fifth a week ago, Strength of schedule does not favor anyone except Notre Dame. Iowa has a couple of wins against the top 25. 
Well, Notre Dame and their strength of schedule. Always a key component when you're talking about the Fighting Irish. But keep in mind ESPN really controls these rankings. They've paid millions and millions and millions of dollars for the rights to this national championship playoff. It's televised on ESPN, and they paid millions for that opportunity. So they're tied into the SEC and the ACC, and you're seeing that the SEC and the ACC are right at the top. And, of course, Notre Dame is one of the biggest television draws in college football today. They've got their own network with NBC. They televise all of their home games. So the Fighting Irish, they would love nothing better than to have Notre Dame in the Final Four. But Notre Dame's still got Stanford to deal with down the road, and that will be at Stanford. As far as Clemson is concerned, well, when you look at their strength of schedule, Supposedly, they have one of the strongest schedules in college football. But they started out with Wofford, who's 4-5 and five on the year. Then they went to Appalachian State. Those two schools are not even in the FBS, and they played them both at home. Louisville, having a down year, they played them on the road, and they won that one easily. Louisville's 5-4 and four on the year. Boston College, Georgia Tech, they're both under 500 at 3-7 and seven and 3-6. and six. They played them at home. They beat Notre Dame thanks to four turnovers by the Fighting Irish. They beat them at home in a hurricane. Then they played Miami, who was in the doldrums under head coach Al Golden before Golden lost the game and his job. But Miami now has won two in a row. They're 6-3, and three, but that's a game that they played on the road, of course, in Miami. North Carolina State, they're 6-3. and three. They beat them on the road. And Florida State, they beat them at home. So out of the nine games that they have played so far, they have played six at home. And people think Ohio State's schedule is tilted. Todd McShay said the other day he was going with the strength of schedule that ESPN uses. Of course he would do that. That says Clemson has the 19th toughest schedule and Notre Dame has the 12th toughest schedule. Well, right there you can look at Clemson's schedule and say, gee, Most of those teams that Clemson has beaten, Ohio State probably could have beaten. And you you could also make the argument that Ohio State's schedule, which is the 73rd toughest schedule in the country, according to ESPN, is probably tougher than this schedule right now because Indiana, with the exception of maybe Notre Dame and possibly Florida State, is better than any of these schools that Clemson has faced. You can look at some of the other schools. Iowa, for example, out of the Big Ten. They could beat anybody. I think if Ohio State played Clemson right now, they'd hammer Clemson. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that that would happen. Alabama, I thought they deserved to be the number two team in the country. I thought they would catapult the Buckeyes just simply because ESPN has control of those rankings. I figured they would go up to number two based upon their win over LSU last week. And it was that that happened. So Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, and Notre Dame. And keep this in mind also. ESPN would love nothing better than to have a rematch of last year's semifinal game between Ohio State and Alabama. Well, this week, the number three Buckeyes, 9-0 and overall, 5-0 and in the Big Ten, are traveling to Illinois 
for a noon kickoff on Saturday. Ohio State's coming off their 28-14 win over Minnesota last Saturday, a game in which Cardell Jones started at quarterback in place of J.T. Barrett. And at his weekly press conference, Meyer quickly addressed the issues at quarterback, and his explanation was simple, saying J.T. Barrett will be the starter unless he doesn't have a good week of practice. The redshirt sophomore was suspended for Saturday's game against Minnesota after being cited for operating a motor vehicle while impaired. Jones filled in and played decently, throwing for 187 yards and a score while rushing for 65 more yards and the game-clinching touchdown. It's a mistake Barrett has paid for, and Meyer doesn't discount that. Well, it's a mistake made, a serious mistake by a kid that really has lived most of his life mistake-free. I mean, he's a kid that... uh He's human, and uh, and then uh, I still have these conversations with him. I said, you can handle when people say you're not very tall or you're not fast enough, you don't throw long, far enough, but when someone's challenges who you are as a person or a man, that's tough. And he probably has not that had that happen to him very often. Meyer didn't discount Jones's performance, though, praising the Cleveland native for his efforts while emphasizing that through all the criticism, he is still 11-0 and as a starter in the Scarlet and Gray. But like always, the coach said determining a quarterback has been a difficult thing. No, it's uh, never an easy call because one guy had uh, his 11th win, 250 all-purpose yards, started off a little slow, inaccurate on a few passes, finished fairly good, uh, made some good plays for us, and uh, is invested in our program. It's never easy. Uh, I think it's the right thing at this time. With Barrett back at quarterback for Ohio State, Illinois has the run and the pass to worry about on Saturday. And Myers says Barrett's rushing element is a problem for opposing defenses, but they are figuring it out. Yeah, he gives you an added element of the double option in the, in the offense. And double option means I'm either I'm reading someone, you know, either in a throw or in a run game. Obviously, the, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it's not as easy anymore. It used to be very easy. Because defenses didn't understand it, now they do. But you read the, you know, you read a defensive end. He closes, you pull, and you run, get yards, and move, move on. Uh, it's much more complicated than that now. You're reading, you know, a variety of different reads, and defenses are so good at giving you false reads. So, but any time you have that, that gives you a cleaner defense, you know, because teams are not quite as uh, uh, aggressive. Third-year sophomore Jalen Marshall was instrumental in setting up the Buckeyes' first offensive touchdown against Minnesota after corralling a 44-yard deep pass from Jones before being brought down at the Gopher 15-yard line. Marshall doesn't just contribute in the passing game, though. He's been a major contributor on punt returns and in perimeter blocking. Meyer has long stressed this year that without elite perimeter blocking, Ezekiel Elliott cannot be nearly as effective in the run game. Marshall has engaged in key blocks all season long, including a crucial one on Elliott's 15-yard TD on Saturday. And Meyer had high praise for Marshall throughout the press conference. Uh, he's one of our best players right now. He's one of our best practice players. He's a guy that's handled his business in the classroom. You know, and uh, he'd be the first one to tell you he redshirted not because we were saving him. He wasn't good enough. He didn't work hard enough. He screwed around in the classroom, and and uh, as a Result of fine parents and a lot of pushing from other people. He's he's handling it. I mean, he's I can't wait to see him every day. That's how much he's matured, and it shows on the field. He's a leader for us. He's uh, you know doing a lot of the unselfish things that maybe most people don't see. That blocking, he's our best blocker. You know, and he's uh, obviously a, a, a very aggressive punt returner that's worked very hard on that. He's one of the best punt returners in America right now. 
Ezekiel Elliott has 14 straight games of 100-plus yards and averages 138 yards per game. The Illini held Purdue to 89 yards rushing last week, part of that because Purdue isn't a great offensive team, but holding any team to 89 yards starts opening eyes. So the game plan will be much different than lately for the Buckeyes. Well, we've had a few games, I think the two before, uh, you know, the, the Penn State and the uh, Rutgers, I felt, really felt that way. I felt do what we're doing well, but have enough wrinkles, like the two tight end sets. And you took a team that doesn't give up much, rush, much rushing yardage and ran for 350, close to 350 yards on Penn State, who we have a lot of respect for. And that was simply because they, we kept them off balance and the quarterback and tailback were making the right reads. And uh, so it's, it's, that's the goal, what you just said is the goal, is be very good at what you do and then have enough wrinkles each week, to, whether it be a Braxton, whether it be um, you know, some other things that we have not done. That's, that's what we spend all this time doing. What are we good at? Let's make sure we do it. But defenses nowadays, I mean, it's with all this video and in the last four, five, six years, it's, I mean, it's, defenses do a much better job than they have in the past. And by the way, Braxton Miller is still involved in the concussion protocol, but he is expected to play on Saturday at Illinois. Meyer is the first coach to win national championships in two conferences and first in winning percentage at .853 among current coaches with at least 10 years of head coaching experience. He achieved another milestone this past weekend. It was his 47th win in his 50th game as Ohio State's coach. There has never been another coach from another FBS school to lead a team to 47 wins in his first 50 games as coach. And his 22-game winning streak is the longest in the FBS currently. But he doesn't mention that to his team. No, I don't. Not with the team. Uh, on rare occasion, you know, certainly not this this one I have not. In the past, I, I maybe have, but, you know, there's so much to be done, and and what does that make a kid play harder? Or does it, you know, I think it just kind of complicates things a little bit more as opposed to go find a way to beat Illinois the best, play the best you can. So I, I really, we don't have conversations about that. As far as Illinois, as far as Illinois is concerned, interim coach Bill Cubitt has done a great job working with the cards he was dealt, and he's seemingly a good sort. However, he will likely be gone at the end of the year. A new AD will want a new coach. More importantly, the report of abuses committed within the football program was damning enough to get both Thomas and Tim Beckman dismissed. Cubitt, although he comes out clean in the report, is just too close to the situation to stay, and Illinois is now looking for a fresh, clean start. But which team will show up? Will it be the team that didn't show up in a 39-0 loss to Penn State, or the one that dominated Purdue 48-14. to This could be a dangerous moment for the Buckeyes. The offense will hum just fine with Barrett under center, and the Bucks won't be in any true trouble, but Illinois will make this a close battle to force a little bit of stress, but the Buckeyes should still come out on top, and then following that, Michigan State, following that, Michigan. This game will be played on ABC Saturday at noon. Now let's take a look at the rest of the top 25 college football schedule for this Saturday. There are no games on Friday or Thursday night tonight, so let's go straight to Saturday, where at noon, Maryland will be playing against Michigan State. That's going to be on ESPN, too. Also at noon on ESPN, number 11, Florida, 
will be taking on South Carolina. At 12 o'clock on the Big Ten Network, Purdue goes to number 18 Northwestern. Also at noon on Fox Sports 1, Kansas will be at number 15 TCU. At 12.30 on ESPN 3, North Carolina State goes to number 16 Florida State. At 3.30 on Saturday afternoon, starting out on ABC, it will be number 14 Michigan at Indiana. On ESPNU at 3.30, Miami of Florida will be at number 23, North Carolina. At 3.30 on NBC, Notre Dame is at home. They're number four in the country against Wake Forest. On ABC at 3.30, number one Clemson goes to Syracuse. At 3.30 on ESPN, number eight Oklahoma State, whom I think should probably be in the top four in place of Notre Dame, will be at Iowa State. Elsewhere at 3.30 on CBS, number 2 Alabama goes to number 17 Mississippi State. On the CBS Sports Network at 3.30, Southern Methodist University will go to the Naval Academy. They're ranked 20th this week in the polls. Well, there's a big game going on at 7 o'clock on ESPN2 where number 21 Memphis, 8-1 and on the year, goes to unbeaten and 9-0 and Houston, they are ranked 24th in the country. And after losing last week for the first time, Memphis will hit the field once again. And our CBS College football analysts, Brian Jones, Rick Neuheisel, Randy Cross, and Aaron Taylor, preview this upcoming matchup and the home field advantage that Houston will have. They're playing at home, and they get it done at that new stadium they have there on campus in Houston. But I tell you what, they talk about the dual threat of Greg Ward, at quarterback. He's over 100 a week ago versus Cincy. Farrell's over 100. But on defense, they may have the next version of the Honey Badger, this Stewart kid, Trevon Stewart. Six tackles from his safety position, three sacks, three tackles for law, a safety, and a couple quarterback hurries. Now, is he a safety or is he an outside linebacker? I mean, he's putting up numbers that usually outside backers post, but I think Houston wins the ball game. Mm, Randy. Yeah, I think the real key, obviously, at Houston is, is Ward. Gary Ward Jr. is an amazing Randy. football for and, and what Greg Ward can do against you is he can beat you not only with his arm, but also with his legs. And on the defensive side, Steven Taylor at linebacker has really done some great work for this, def- for this team. So unlike some of these earlier Houston teams, this is a team that can also play defense. Yes. I like Houston. I like Greg Ward Jr. as a dual-threat quarterback. He's been outstanding with his legs, scoring numerous touchdowns. But last week, 16 of 24 with two picks. I think Memphis rebounds from their loss to Navy. I think they find a way to get the ball. Navy played keep away, just like we were talking about with Stanford. Navy was able to keep the ball away from Paxton Lynch. I don't think that'll be an issue with an up-tempo offense with Houston. I think they get the ball, and they don't turn it over, and I like Memphis. In Memphis. I like Houston in this game because the way they're going to play keep away is a play takeaway. 25 takeaways that defense they don't play very good pass defense they gave up over 500 yards a week ago but they're going to challenge you bj all those players you guys mentioned on that defensive side of the ball are playing at a high level and let's not forget the navy effect teams the very next week after they play navy don't have a very good track record this houston team i think is a much more balanced team to your point randy that we've seen in the past and i think memphis is reeling and houston gets the win You know, Navy is a very tough team to play against because they play that triple option and it's hard to get it down defensively if you don't see it week after week after week. So Navy is always a tough team to go up against. But in this one, this one's going to be a high-scoring affair, and I think Memphis comes away with the victory in Houston. Now, elsewhere at 7 o'clock on the CBS Sports Network, it will be number 22 Temple 
taking on South Florida. At 7.15 on ESPN, another SEC matchup where Arkansas will be at number 9 LSU coming off of their defeat at the hands of Alabama last week. At 7.30 on Fox, Oregon goes to number 7 Stanford. And at 8 o'clock on ABC, the game of the week, number 12 Oklahoma is at number 6 Baylor. Oklahoma 8-1, Baylor 8-0. The Sooners are expected to win. However, those CBS college football sports analysts look at how the Sooners can win this game. I'm looking at this thing, and I think Baker Mayfield can get some work done against yeah. this defense. I know Samaje P. Ryan can get some done. My favorite linebacker in America, best name usage since the movie Airplane, Eric Stryker. <laughs> Stryker! It's unbelievable. I think this defense plays against Baylor, matches up well with these guys, and I think they pull it off at Baylor. They beat Baylor. Ooh. I'm with you. I think it's an Oklahoma kind of game. I think they got beat 48-14. That sticks in your craw. They're going to be an angry team going into Baylor. Baylor gave up a lot of rushing yardage to Kansas State. They showed a formula. Kansas State also possessed the ball for 38 minutes. If they are patient at, in Norman, if, they, if, if they'll figure out a game plan that allows Samaji Pirine, allows Joe Mixon to run the ball, use Baker Mayfield, but not so that you're trying to go up and down the field in such haste that you're turning the ball back over to a very, very potent offense. I think they've got a chance to steal this one. I'm expecting Oklahoma, Oklahoma to win. So I was right. Run the ball. Run the run ball. ball. Run, yeah. run, run. I'm with you, Rick. Last week in that game watching Kansas State, they were able to stop the run. They were able to run the football. When you look at this Oklahoma team defensively, they are as good on defense as they are, except they rush the passer quite a bit better. And Bailey does. They lead the conference with sacks with 33. You mentioned Eric Stryker. He has seven and a half. They've got a gang of guys that have two plus. They come from every which way. Baylor looked a little bit pedestrian to me offensively a week ago. They got the win, but it wasn't an impressive fashion. So Stidham did well. But I think this Oklahoma defense can rattle him and win this game on the road. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be the only one picking Oklahoma. You guys, y'all stole my thunder. They did it for you. I know. That's what I get for a batting cleanup, right? Allow them to steal my thunder. It's, it's going to be about the rushing game. You've hit all the points about what they've allowed Baylor the last couple of weeks. And Oklahoma has been running the ball, and you've been asking them to do that. 52, 57, uh, 42, excuse me, 49, Over 250 yards each of their last that, three Those games. have been the attempts yeah. the last four weeks. So right. they have, they've, they're trying to get back to more balance. Defensive side, they can get Zach Sanchez back in the fold. They think they will have him back at one cornerback position. I like Oklahoma to win this. The best line in the whole movie of Airplane? We've got to land this plane to get these people to a hospital. What is it, doctor? It's a big white building with patients, but that doesn't matter right now. <laughs> Airplane, one of the great movies. Anyway, back to the top 25. Elsewhere around the country, it will be Minnesota at number 5, Iowa. That's also at 8 o'clock on the Big Ten Network. Just two more games on Fox Sports 1 at 10 o'clock. Number 10, Utah goes to Arizona. And rounding out the top 25 schedule for Saturday at 10.45 on ESPN, it's Washington State at number 19, UCLA. Minnesota Vikings coach Mike Zimmer was refreshingly unfiltered in an overfiltered league on Sunday. He didn't like cornerback LaMarcus Joyner's hit on his quarterback Teddy Bridgewater that knocked him unconscious, and he said so. In his opinion, had this been a street game, the participants would have been brawling. So he said so. And on NBC's Football Night in America on Sunday, 
Rodney Harrison called it a dirty hit before adding, I wasn't surprised because it happened to me in 2006 when Harrison was with the Pats and Bobby Wade was with Jeff Fisher's Tennessee Titans. Harrison went into detail on the hit from Wade, a receiver who later played for the Vikings. Rams coach Jeff Fisher, who was with the Titans then, he was their head coach, unloaded on a verbal assault against Harrison, saying Harrison had 18 unnecessary roughness penalties, seven personal fouls, and four roughing the passer penalties that year. Fisher then defended his reputation as a member of the league's competition committee. Peter King of the NFL Sunday night game gives his take on the little feud between Rodney Harrison and Jeff Fisher. You know, I'm with Rodney every week in the fall. been with him, you know, for many years now, uh, every week. Rodney is an absolutely very opinionated guy who, uh, no matter what anybody said, he's been there. He believes what he believes. Uh, and there's, and you're not going to convince them otherwise. Um, and I, but I think this rises to the level sometimes. When I have been listening in the last few days to the stuff about Jeff Fisher, here's the thing I would say. In the summer, when there was all this stuff going on about the Patriots and Tom Brady, I was I, I listened to one coach on my training camp tour rail against the Patriots for all the cheating stuff that they did, and I believe they do stuff in the visitors' locker room. I believe they're doing this, and I just said, I I, I don't I don't want to be obnoxious and everything, but I said those are incredible accusations. You got to prove that, you know, before you would expect me to believe. That the Patriots are, are, you know, uh, you know, have weird surveillance techniques in that locker room. I heard the stories, but has anybody ever proven it? No. So I feel the same way about Jeff Fisher. Give me a former player on his team who said, Jeff Fisher always told us, we want you to hit until a millisecond after the whistle. And then just, you know, pretend like, hey, I was just hitting to the whistle. You know, because that is the big complaint about Jeff Fisher slash Greg Williams' team. They will hit after the whistle. They don't stop at the whistle. Well, and, and they'll hit you late. They'll hit you dirty. Well, I, I, I just, I'm sorry. I need some proof about this. I think anecdotal evidence in this case is not evidence. Do I think Jeff Fisher is a dirty coach? No. Do I think he teaches dirty tactics? Probably not. Do I think Jeff Fisher is a good football coach? No, I don't. He spent 20 years in Tennessee, got to the Super Bowl once, and lost to the Rams. And he's been the head coach of the Rams now for six years, and he hasn't been to the playoffs yet. The man is the most overrated head football coach in the history of the NFL. He hasn't done anything to warrant being a football coach in the NFL for 26 years, and he will continue to be an average to subpar average football coach in the NFL. Tonight, as far as the weekend schedule starts off, it will be Buffalo going to New York to face off with the Jets on Thursday night football in the return to New York for Bills coach Rex Ryan. Yahoo sports analysts LeVar Arrington, Rand Getlin, and Elliot Harrison go over the matchup. All right, so it is the 110th meeting between the Bills and the Jets. The Bills, they've won the last three in a row, and the last time they got the victory, wow, stomp out fashion, 38-3. to So what's the biggest storyline coming out of here, man? And one of the things that I really want to watch tonight is Rex's return, how he's going okay. to be received, how the other team is going to receive him, how his team plays, mm-hmm. knowing that this is a big game for him. You know, during Rex's time with the Jets, he's 50-54, and 54, but they made two AFC title appearances. They lost the Colts and the Steelers in those Good two point. title Good games. Point. But... 
you know, he had a heck of a run out there, had some good players, some good times. So I think it means something whether they acknowledge it or not. Rex Ryan wants to win tonight. Mm -hmm. And if his team is playing for him, yep. they're going to want to win this game more than just any regular game that they're playing, knowing that this is the team that kind of cast him aside. Elliot, last time out the Bills, they had two guys rush for over 100 yards. Sammy yep. Watkins, he eclipsed the 150-yard mark receiving. So who's the biggest fantasy X factor in this one? So, of course, that segue, I pick a jet, right? Uh -huh. Sorry, man. Yep. I'm, I'm going with Brandon Marshall. Right. That's, hey, that's just how you do. The machine. Brandon Marshall is going to be the highest score, I think, okay. because he's already, first of all, the eighth highest scorer at his position group in fantasy. But the Bills have also given up a fair share of fantasy points to wide receivers. They're 11th in that category as far as 11th most fantasy points allowed out of 32 teams. So you got the eighth best receiver going up against a defense that's not doing that well. And again, Fitzy doesn't get sacked a lot. I think Marshall's going to get plenty of targets. I see him as the high score, but I don't think anybody has a 20-point game. All right, L.A., let's put those uh, initials to use. Let's yeah. assess who gets the win in this one. Nick Mango, Willie Colon. Willie Colon is out. Offensive lineman, important. Nick Mango, neck, may play, but he's injured. Secondary, mm. injured. The Jets are dealing with a long, long list of injuries. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be difficult to deal with a team that now has their three-headed monster finally on the, on the field together. Sammy Watkins, Tyrod Taylor, LaShawn McCoy. You had Carlos Williams to that as, as the baby as the baby monster. I think it might be too much for them to block that, that Buffalo defensive front. Deal with them on offense with those guys being as mobile as they are. So who wins this game? Well, I've got the Buffalo Bills winning on the road in the rematch between Rex Ryan and the New York Jets. Elsewhere, on Sunday, the top game around this area will be the Cleveland Browns in Pittsburgh to take on the Steelers. A couple of stories about the Browns this week. Would you want Matt Stafford as your quarterback if you're a Cleveland Browns fan? Well, the rumor is, is that the Detroit Lions are ready to cut loose their former number one draft pick, and he's only 26 years old. If you pick him up and you're a Cleveland Browns fan, you've got to be happy with your quarterback position for the next 10 to 12 years. So, yes, I take Matt Stafford if I am the Cleveland Browns. But they've got Johnny Manziel possibly going as quarterback against the Steelers this weekend. Ben Roethlisberger practiced today. He says he is playing for the Steelers on Sunday with that injured ankle. If Big Ben plays, the Steelers win. If Johnny Manziel plays, the Steelers win. If Landry Jones plays for the Steelers, the Steelers win. So what happens? The Steelers will win on Sunday against the Browns. That game at 1 o'clock on CBS. Elsewhere around the, the league on the 1 o'clock games on Fox, the Lions will be in Green Bay to take on the Packers. I've got the Packers winning that one. Dallas travels to Tampa Bay. The Cowboys win. The Panthers will win over the Titans on Saturday, or on Sunday, I should say, in Tennessee. The St. Louis Rams will win at home against the Chicago Bears. Also at 1 o'clock, the New Orleans Saints will be in Washington to take on the Redskins, and I've got the Saints winning that game. The Philadelphia Eagles host the Miami Dolphins in the Battle of Green, and the Eagles win that one. It will be Jacksonville in Baltimore to take on the Ravens in the final 1 o'clock game on Sunday, and I've got Baltimore winning that football game. At 4.05 on Fox, the Minnesota Vikings go to Oakland to take on the Raiders, and I'm going to take the Vikings to win that football game. At 4.25 in the afternoon, in a rematch of a couple of Super Bowls, the New England Patriots will be in New York to take on the Giants, and I think 
it will be the Patriots winning that game because they've got a chip on their shoulder and want to go unbeaten. And at 425 on CBS, the Kansas City Chiefs will play in Denver against the Broncos, and I've got the Broncos winning it for the second time against Kansas City this week. In the Sunday night game of the week, it will be Arizona in Seattle taking on the Seahawks. I've got the Cardinals winning that football game over the Seahawks. And finally, on Monday night football, it is the Cincinnati Bengals trying to stay unbeaten at 9-0, and entertaining the Houston Texans and Bobby Hoyer. I'm going to take the Bengals to stay unbeaten and continue that streak. Well, Denver Nuggets forward Wilson Chandler will undergo hip surgery and miss the season. Chandler has been diagnosed with a labral tear, lead sources said, and he suffered the injury during the preseason. He's expected to make a complete recovery from surgery after a six-month rehab process, according to league sources. And is George Carl already in trouble in Sacramento? Frustrations surrounding a poor start have caused tension in the Sacramento Kings locker room this week. ESPN's Tom Penn reports on the speculation. Well, I mean, it's really about the relationship of the management and the front office in those players. You cannot have a situation where the general manager goes directly to the, to the players to discuss the coach, especially this early. DeMarcus Cousins goes on a profanity-laced tirade in the locker room. This is after he hasn't been playing, or, and he throws a fit to the point where they won't back the coach and discipline the player. If all that's true, it's a disaster in Sacramento, an organizational disaster from the top down. Look, I was watching a game over the weekend when they were playing Houston, and they're in the middle of a losing streak. And in the fourth quarter of that game, you get to see Peja Stojakovic, one of their executives, sitting with DeMarcus Cousins, who's in street clothes, giggling and laughing. One minute to go in the game. They're just having a little chat, sitting there. There is You want the players to suffer and feel the pain and whatever else. And instead, you have a front office executive with your star player who's not playing right there next to the bench, giggling and having a good time. When I saw that, I thought, that is bad, bad, bad. And so it's a symbol of what's going on there. You must back your coach. Look, he's won 1,144 career games, and they're trying to get that thing together. They've had injuries and had a tough, tough schedule. So he's got to have organizational alignment from the coach, from the owner to the front office to the coach, so the star players know there's a pecking order. Otherwise, you have complete chaos. George Carl has won everywhere he's been, from Cleveland to Sacramento. I believe that the Sacramento Kings front office should just say, George, take this thing over and let's go become a winner. Well, it seems like an eternity since we've seen Ronda Rousey in the octagon, but this Saturday night, we will. Rousey will defend her women's bantamweight championship against Holly Holm in the UFC 193. Does Holm have a chance to take down the undefeated Rousey? Well, Lyle Fitzsimmons and Ryan Bass break it all down. Rousey's certainly a rising star, not just in the sport, but maybe one of the most recognizable female athletes in the world right now. What has Rousey done for the sport of MMA? Yeah, there's no question about that. She's uh, as visible as any athlete, regardless of their sex and regardless of uh, you know their activity. She's everywhere. You walk through a bookstore, she's on magazine covers, you turn on the television, she's looking at you through the screen. Uh, I mean, she's not only elevated MMA, she's also, and I, I talked to Dana White yesterday, and he said one of the 
things that she's done that was kind of unexpected and, and kind of a bonus that they're getting out of all this, she's invigorating a whole new generation of women. I mean, there are 10-year-old kids who see her, 10-year-old girls, who think, hey, I can be an athlete. I can go and compete with the guys. I can do things that, you know, normally girls aren't able to do. So, you know, forget what she's able to do for UFC and everything else. She's also doing things that stretch far beyond the uh, the octagon. And she's certainly changing the way people see and recognize this sport. What about her competition, Holly Holm? Hey, she's undefeated, too. Does she have any chance of upsetting the champ? Well, I mean, she's got a chance. She does have a pedigree, and, and Dana White went to uh, to great extremes to say, listen, you know, she was a, a championship-level boxer. She's not a novice. She can get in there and fight. Uh, you know, the problem that I see is is her style when she was boxing wasn't exactly a destroyer. I mean, she was a, the kind of fighter that would run you around the ring for 10 rounds and be, you know, very sublime and be very technical. And when Ronda Rousey comes charging out of the corner at her in the first 30 seconds, if she gets her on the floor, the thing is going to be done like that. Uh, you know, if she can get her past the first couple of minutes and maybe test that stamina out a little bit, maybe you got something going on. But uh, it, it, it seems like a good novelty boxer MMA star matchup, but uh, I'm not sure it'll, it'll be that real when it comes to Saturday night. And Rousey has won three of her last four, by the way, courtesy of the knockout. Who ultimately wins this Saturday? And what are the two things, Lyle, you're looking forward to seeing out of this fight? Well, I have a hard time seeing Ronda doing anything other than winning. Uh, I think what you want to look for as it gets going is kind of look at Holly's demeanor when she gets in the cage, when she's actually looking across at her and see if she looks rattled or nervous. She insists she won't be. She insists the fact that she's been in you know high-level athletic uh, competitions before will keep that from being a problem. And then also just you know look at your watch. I mean, if, if the thing's still going on after a minute, after 90 seconds, Obviously, that's different than anything Rousey's seen lately. So maybe the longer it goes, the better chance home has got. If she's still standing after 60 seconds, it'll certainly be different. Well, if Holm ends up beating Rousey, it'll be one of the greatest upsets of all time, like the USA over the Russian hockey team, North Carolina State over Houston, and Villanova beating Georgetown. I just don't see it happening. I see Ronda Rousey winning this thing within the first two minutes of this fight. Well, the Detroit Red Wings have announced a contract extension for Justin Aldicator for seven years, worth $29.79 million for the 28-year-old forward. That means Aldicator will carry a $4.25 million cap hit until the age of 36 years old. Reports say Abdelkader has a full no-trade clause in the first four years of the deal and a partial one for the final three seasons. It also is believed that the forward will receive $20 million of the deal within the first four years. Abdelkader is coming off a season where he's had career highs in goals with 23, assists with 21, and points of 44, and he was set to hit the unrestricted free agent market in the summer. Well, when you think of St. Louis Cardinals great Lou Brock, you think of his incredible speed and his legendary base-stealing prowess, both of which paved his path to baseball's Hall of Fame. It's those thoughts that also make recent news about Brock's health all the more disheartening. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Brock had his left leg amputated below the knee on October 27th. The National League's all-time stolen base leader had been battling an infection related to the diabetic condition he suffers from. The good news, though, is that he is recuperating now and is taking steps on the road to his recovery. 
Brock was a cornerstone for some of the great Cardinal teams during the 60s and 70s. He finished his career with over 3,000 hits and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1985. Major League Baseball's chief baseball officer, Joe Torre, said Wednesday that the league may consider rule changes involving slides into second. Takeout slides have been a part of the game since its inception, and no one wants to see a key player taken out of the playoff hunt due to something like this, but figuring out an acceptable solution to this issue is now the real challenge. If MLB decides to make this rule change, it's going to be tough to satisfy every single fan, including me. If takeout slides were completely eliminated, it would be safer, but it would alter the way the game is played. And finally tonight, Give Concussion, the upcoming film about the NFL's tragic fumbling of its head trauma crisis credit for surprising the viewer. It turns out that a movie starring pretty dry stuff, brain science, a doctor's fight to prove his research, meddled to peers and NFL corporate suits, can have some pretty terrifying scenes. Will Smith is in the starring role, and Peter King shares his thoughts after seeing the movie. I'll tell you the way I think the NFL is going to handle it. Um, and, yeah, I have seen the movie. Okay, So this movie is going to be upsetting, mostly, in my opinion. It's going to be upsetting to parents who, I think, if you're on the fence, about letting your child play football, you'll be off the fence and you'll be anti-football after you see this movie. Um, I think most people will be if they're on the fence. But having said that, I think the way the NFL is going to handle this is they're going to say, look, we've acknowledged that we've had a problem in the past with uh, full disclosure and, uh, and really trying to get to the bottom of the head trauma issue. But I think that Without any question now, uh, the NFL is taking it seriously because they realize the future of the game is at stake. Yeah. But the NFL is not going to like this movie. I'll tell you who's not going to like the movie, the Pittsburgh Steelers, because I think that there's a lot in here that really paints a bad picture of the way the Steelers reacted to uh, uh, to the whole uh, concussion uh, business when it uh, when it came out with Mike Webster, Terry Long, and some of their players. I thought it was a powerful movie. Um, but, you know, it's like one of those things that when you know a lot about a topic, um, you, you, see the, you see the flaws. And I know a lot about this topic, and I know a lot about the people in this movie. And some of them I thought were not portrayed correctly. But that... That is a uh, that's a little picky. Yeah, that's a little picky, Yoon. I thought it was a I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was an important movie. I, I'll say that. And it's a movie that I plan on going to see because this is a topic that interests me tremendously. I'll tell you another sports movie that's coming out over the Thanksgiving holiday: Creed. It'll be the final edition of the Rocky. I guess you could call it a six or seven parter. But this is the one where Apollo Creed's son 
goes to Rocky and asks him to train him. That's another one that I plan on seeing, being the Rocky buff that I am. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. Glad to have you along tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Hope you join us again next week. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer for tonight's program. But most of all, our thanks go out to you for listening. Football's over. No more football tomorrow night. Basketball begins a week from tomorrow night when we bring you girls and boys high school basketball from Wayndale in Apple Creek, Ohio. Our thanks for you listening here this evening. I'll be back again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock with another edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Until then, enjoy the football game tonight between the Bills and Jets. I'm Dave Mitchell. Good night, everybody.